Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rising Stars. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Frank Joseph. Frank is the editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine and the author of Before Atlantis, Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, Gods of the Runes, and The Lost Treasure of King Juba. His latest book is called Our Dolphin Ancestors, Keepers of Lost Knowledge and Healing Wisdom. And I am very pleased to have him with us today. Welcome, Frank. Thank you very much, Miriam. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you because you have opened a world to me that I would never in my wildest dreams have imagined. You you have obviously a lively interest, or should I say passion, for investigating ancient civilizations. Now, what inspired you to turn your attention to the dolphins? Well, uh, to make that as uh, succinct an answer as possible, I had no particular interest in dolphins, except that I had an opportunity to be in the water with them, not to swim with them, but to be in the water with them, as thousands of people have done around the world, uh, about three years ago when I was in Honduras. And I was there to uh, see a scientific institute that was involved in the research of dolphins. These are not captive dolphins, they're wild dolphins that have chosen to cooperate with these scientists. And um, it was in the course of being in the water with the dolphin and having the uh, uh, dolphin handler, if you want to call him that, explain some basic things about the dolphins to us that I was struck by the human appearance of the animal's eye. It was like nothing that I had ever anticipated. I thought that I would see something similar to a dog because I was aware of that dolphins were mammals that once lived on land and had evolved into the sea. So I expected a kind of canine appearance, um, but the, the gaze that uh, was returned to me was something not only human, uh, but I felt like I was in the presence of Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> I thought that I was being looked at by an intellectually superior creature. I had no preconceived notions about this. The other uh, feeling that I had from it, more than a feeling, it was, it was a knowing, was that the animal was scanning me. It was as though it was downloading my medical history, my all my interests. Within a nanosecond, I felt as though I had just been completely thoroughly scanned. And when I spoke to other tourists, and that's all we were, uh, that were at this institute. It's called the Rorotan Maritime Institute, for and people who are interested in it. It's a leading research facility in uh, dolphins. And the, the other tourists felt pretty much the same as I did. They felt as though this animal had uh, somehow had some ability to learn everything conceivable about us, down to our cellular makeup. And so it was that experience that really triggered my interest uh, in in dolphins, and for the next several months, uh, talk about an obsession. I mean, that's all I could do was to read and to uh, talk with others about uh, dolphins. And what I learned was uh, far more amazing than anything I had uh, possibly preconceived. It was just the, the the research that's taking place on dolphins now is has achieved so many breakthroughs that they they haven't had time really to get into the news media very much. And so I felt that it was incumbent upon me to uh, discuss these things with average persons like myself. I'm not a, uh, 
I have no background in this kind of a science whatsoever. My background is in journalism and in archaeology. And uh, so I just try to approach it from the point of view as, uh, just like anybody else that's interested in this, but I try to be as accurate and honest in my reporting as I possibly could. Well, I think you're being somewhat modest because part of your background in ancient civilizations actually dovetails uh, very nicely with the story of the dolphin, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, Tell us about the notion of the aquatic ape. What is our connection to it as human beings, and why do you think dolphins may also be related? Well, this is the the crux of uh, my conclusions in this book. Um, We understand that the dolphins, as I said, were originally mammals that lived on the land and that some change in the environment, some dramatic change in the environment, forced them to stop being land animals and to try to adapt to the sea. And nature does this from time to time. She presents various species with challenges and this challenge is adapt or die. And many species have not been able to adapt, and they've gone extinct. Other species have been able to successfully adapt to radical changes and and go on. I believe that the same thing has happened to our species. I think that when we were evolving as primates on the East African savanna about three million years ago, that our environment, our ancestral environment, was radically changed by massive flooding. Now, this is not theory. This is is known as a fact that East Africa at the time, when we were hardly more than, not even really Homo erectus yet, this is pre-Homo erectus, when we were um, making a fine living, as it were, in East Africa, life was abundant, all of a sudden massive flooding took place, and our species was challenged, precisely the same as all others that have been involved in this, and that is adapt or die. And I believe that our species was in the process of following the dolphin's lead, that we were actually in the process of becoming sea mammals. The difference is that the dolphins continued, the ancestors of the dolphins continued their destiny in the sea and became what they are. Whereas what happened with us was that the the floods that forced us into the sea receded in our part of the world and left populations of hominids stranded back on land. So we were already developing sea mammal traits when we found ourselves cast back on the land again. And so now we had to find uh, ways to survive on land. Now this is an incident that took place more than once with our species. And I found that there are other species that have gone through similar uh, incidents of being cast into the sea and then cast back on the land several times. The elephant is one, for example. Paleobiologists know that the elephant has gone through several aquatic phases, and that explains why the elephant, for example, is such a terrific swimmer. Most people don't realize that all elephants have been seen sometimes as far as 300 miles out at sea. Really? Actually, some Indian elephants are able to migrate from island to island in the Maldives well over 300 miles, and there's no problem for that. They can do it. Um I believe that the same thing happened to to us. I think that we have been in and out of the sea several times, and that explains a number of things about us, why we are what we are. And I don't mean just physically, but I think physiologically, psychologically, I think that we are a traumatized species, 
and this helps to explain uh, why we are capable of such greatness, such fabulous, wonderful achievements, and we are also capable of the greatest cruelties and the greatest stupidities of any other species on the planet. That's because we are a, a kind of a hybrid. Uh, we have, we're neither fish nor fowl, as it were. We are part land animal and part sea mammal. Mm-hmm. You had an intriguing observation that during our aquatic phase, uh, diet high in seafood uh, predisposed to the development of the brain. Yes, that's correct. Um, of course, everybody has heard that uh, fish is brain food. Well, that has been positively established that the uh, omega-3 involved in, in uh, consuming fish uh, contributes to the uh, fatty development tissues of the, of the brain, of the mammalian brain, not just the human brain, but all mammal brains. And the, the dolphins have been gorging themselves on fish almost exclusively for more than 3 million years. And this accounts for the, to a large degree, for the enormous development of their brains. Um, matter of fact, all sea mammals, not just uh, dolphins, but uh, otters and penguins and so forth, they have exceptional intelligence. And part of that is involved in their, their seafood diet. If you were to look at, uh, you had two platters, and on one platter there was a human brain, and the next to it was a dolphin brain. It would, it would look almost exactly the same. Uh, matter of fact, uh, many uh, specialists in animal anatomy uh, have confessed that when they're first confronted with this comparison, it's given them pause. They're not able to immediately identify that, oh yeah, this is a different type of brain. What gives the dolphin, this is the interesting thing, what gives the dolphin brain away first, at first sight as not being human is that it's larger than ours and its frontal cortex, its frontal lobes of the brain are more developed than ours. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at is really like you're looking at the brain of a, like an E.T. or something, of an animal that's somewhat like ours, like us, but has developed incredible levels of awareness that are far beyond anything that we have, far beyond. And as far as measuring intelligence, uh, you can make a real strong case that these are the most brilliant animals on Earth. Yeah, well, we'll we'll explore that a little further. But you mentioned another uh, few features that we share with dolphins, like the, the physiology of the arms and legs. Well, that is something that was a real shocker for me and that really prompted me, I think, to write this book more than anything else. Uh, and during my, my personal research, because that's how it began, I didn't begin writing a book. I just wanted to find out as much as I could about the dolphins to satisfy my own curiosity. But in the course of my research, I found a recent photograph, a superb photograph that was taken by uh, a very brilliant uh, biologist. His name is Dr. Hans Thewissen. He's at uh, Ohio State University, and he specializes in uh, microphotography of embryos, all kinds of embryos. And he took a photograph, a superb detailed photograph of a dolphin embryo, and I was absolutely shocked, and so much so that I put it in the book. I'm going to make sure that this photograph got in there. This is a dolphin embryo. Well, <laughs> and, and you if can, you want, hang on, and if you want to hear about what Frank found, you'll have to come back after the break. Frank, you were looking at this photograph of a dolphin embryo, and what impressed you about it? Well, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Uh, 
the resemblance of this dolphin embryo to a human embryo was so striking that I couldn't explain it. For example, the dolphin at this stage, at embryonic stage, evidences toes, five toes with a large toe, a foot, an ankle, calf, knee, thigh, and hip. It also shows an arm, shows a hand with a thumb, four fingers. The fingers and uh, the thumb are covered with the beginnings of a uh, membrane that would later become fin. The great difference is in the head. The head has a general human shape, but it is so huge in relationship to the body that obviously this has is carrying a, a super brain. So I, I was challenged to think, like, how on earth can we explain two supposedly radically different animals as a dolphin and a human being, and yet in the embryonic stages, their resemblance is remarkably close. Now, anyone that's taken Biology 101 knows that the embryonic stage in any mammal, and in fact, even a lot of non-mammals, indicates there are parts of their previous evolutionary development. Some of these traits become recessive or dormant or they get faded out, but they appear in the embryonic stage. And here I'm seeing these positively, identifiably human characteristics in a dolphin embryo. Now, as a dolphin uh, matures, many of these features are muted, but they are still there. They still have them. Uh, These legs that you see in the embryo become fused and become uh, the the tail and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, The feet uh, become uh, part of the fluke. But nonetheless, under... Underlying all this are these very human traits. My conclusion from all this is, and I know this sounds totally crazy and wacko and radical, and you need several hundred pages to explain more thoroughly than I can here, I believe that our ancestors, about three million years ago, less than three million years ago, when they were evolving into the sea and becoming sea mammals, Most of them were thrown back on the land again, but a number of them did not. A number of them pursued their destiny in the sea the same as the other sea mammals did. And I believe that that is the origin of the commonality between dolphins and ourselves. I think dolphins are a, some dolphins, um, I'm thinking especially of the spotted dolphin or the bottlenose dolphin, the most intelligent of the species. I believe that uh, we share a human-like ancestor. Or if you want a dolphin-like ancestor, some (laughs) ancestor that is directly related to both of us. And I think this explains the tremendous affinity that dolphins have for human beings. Wild dolphins. We're not talking about trained creatures in SeaWorld somewhere. But wild dolphins have been recorded literally from the beginning of, of human history as dolphins saving human beings in distress at sea. And the relationship, the, the, the friendly relationship between dolphins, wild dolphins and humans, is worldwide known. It's fact of life. How can we explain this natural affinity that dolphins have for us? That's because I think that they recognize that we are related to them. I think that we are their close relations. We're close relations. They seem different than us because their environment is the sea. Mm-hmm. And so they've had to develop shark-like uh, physiognomy to in order to succeed in the sea, the same way that we have developed a different 
physical appearance because we are on the land, and the environmental forces on the land are vastly different than those in the sea. But you take those environmental forces away, and you have this this commonality uh, between the dolphins and ourselves. I think it is a remarkable um, recognition. It's radical, uh, but I believe that it's it explains a lot. And you point out that whales uh, have a, a evolved from a slightly different path. Quite a different path, actually. Uh, whale evolution is really pretty well understood and followed because there's a, a lot of uh, fossil and skeletal evidence to show how they've changed. The dolphin, the, the 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 whales' ancestors were a, were a, a canine, a kind of a, a wolf-like animal that was forced into the sea. We have to understand that uh, I'm not talking about uh, specific generalities. What I mean by that is that all human beings underwent this uh, change, or that all uh, whales or dolphins went, underwent these changes. I think populations of them did because there were different conditions in different parts of the world. Parts of East Africa were flooded, and so populations of human beings had to uh, adapt to them. Whereas in other parts of East Africa, those conditions did not appertain. And so you didn't see that kind of a change. That it would explain the tremendous human diversity that, that took place, and more, much more so than now. We're, now we have racial differences. But in the past, there were interspecies differences amongst the, the human species. There was Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens sapiens, mm-hmm. Homo erectus. Homo agaster, all these are different species variations, not racial variations, actual species variations. I think that the reason why was because environmental forces were different in different parts of the world. And what we are today, modern human beings, I believe that we are the direct descendants of this uh, sea mammal ancestor that connects us to dolphins. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk a lot about uh, the dolphin's brain uh, and their communication abilities, uh, one of the things that I found absolutely mind-blowing was um, one of the researchers who was recording his communication with the dolphins had the idea to slow down the tape. Tell us about that. Now, this was a very brilliant man. Uh, early on in dolphin research, his name was Dr. John C. Lilly. And... Uh, he had tried for years to establish some kind of communication, direct communication between dolphins and human beings. Uh, and he believed that the dolphins had their own language. He assumed that this language is, was only in the clicks and whistles and the vocalizations that we hear, that that is just the, way, the only way that dolphins communicate. And so he had tried everything. He had captive dolphins, wild dolphins, and he recorded thousands and thousands of hours of dolphin sounds. And he would rec- he'd play them back and try to systematize them and try to make sense of them. Nothing worked. Nothing made any sense whatsoever. Didn't make any kind of breakthrough. And then, by chance, one day, he turned the tape recorder on. It was an old reel-to-reel recorder. This is back in the early 60s. He turned the recorder back on, but he forgot to put on the, the proper speed. So instead of playing at, say, at, at its normal top speed, he played it at a really slow speed, and the dolphin's voice came back, played very, very slowly, and he could understand what the dolphin was saying. The dolphin was actually, in the recorded session, was repeating some words and phrases 
that Dr. Lilly had used, and even some words that his wife had used. Uh, a, a series of numbers, for example. I think one was like R1345. And the dolphin repeated back R1345. Clearly, there were about four or five of these that were recorded. So well, I think this was a tremendous insight. It, because the dolphin brain is so huge and so developed, it would be wrong for us to think they think that they operate at the same speed that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they operate much faster. They think much faster than we do. They are able to take in huge quantities of information at incredible speeds. And this was a breakthrough. So the dolphin did, as a matter of fact, mimic Dr. Lilly and his wife, but at his own speed, which was much faster than anything we could understand in real time. You did cite the case of, I think it was an autistic boy who had never spoken and was put in the water with the dolphins and was actually able to uh, produce the same types of clicks and whistles and communicate. That is uh, really one of the most amazing stories that I came across. Dolphins are used today around the world in uh, therapy for, for autistic children. And the success rate is is very high. It's not 100%, but it's it's very high. And in this one case, there was this boy who was, I forgot, uh, 10 or 11 years old and had never spoken in his entire life. There was actually nothing wrong with the child intellectually, but just never spoke. And he was in the water with the dolphin for a relatively short time, got along really well with the dolphin. And then the boy began almost immediately uh, repeating the same sounds made with the dolphin, and that the dolphin would respond to the boy when the boy was talking in in dolphin talk. And the mimicry that the boy had was so close that even cetologists, in other words, specialists in understanding and trying to understand the dolphins, could could hardly make a distinction between the boy's vocalizations and the vocalizations made by the dolphin. They were actually communicating of course, we know that many times autistic children are extremely intelligent, have superior intelligence, but other parts of their uh, intellectual function are seem to be muted or they just don't work, but there's an overcompensation of some kind. But here was an actual communication between this child and the dolphin, and it's... Uh, there have been other instances like that, but that was the most outstanding I ever came across. That was pretty mind-blowing, I, I have to say. Now, yeah. uh, you talk about autistic children uh, having real benefit from being in the water with dolphins, and you describe many different kinds of uh, disorders that have benefited. Um, you you uh, describe the dolphin's ability to to kind of scan a body as being more like an x-ray than a photograph? Well, it's like a a sonogram, really, more than an x-ray. There have been uh, one case I can think of particularly was this woman who was swimming with dolphins, and uh, the the dolphin uh, rammed her, which is unusual. Usually dolphins don't engage in any kind of violence against human beings at all, but the dolphin rammed her, and uh, didn't seriously hurt her, but caused a bruise. And uh, so she she went to the hospital. And while the physicians were looking at the bruise that was made by the dolphin, they found that the bruise made by the dolphin was directly, specifically over a cancer that had gone unnoticed. 
and the cancer was treated and the woman's life was saved. Uh, there have been other instances where uh, humans have been in the water and have been sapped, as it were, uh, by the sonic pulses that the dolphins uh, put out. And it's found that what they've done is that they have rendered uh, cancer uh, tumors uh, you know, non-malignant. Uh, the, the effect of dolphins, not only on physical healing of human beings, but on psychological, emotional healing is terrific. Well, let's there get back a, to uh, that after oh, the yeah. break because it's, it's fascinating. And we're back with our guest, Frank Joseph, speaking about his book, Our Dolphin Ancestors, and about the amazing abilities of dolphins to affect human physical bodies, and about the dolphins' sonic ministrations on conditions having to do with, with intelligence, with um, depression, you know, with, with the brain, uh, with the organization of the brain. One of the most mind-blowing facts that you quoted was that um, there were cases where they had increased the intelligence, the IQ of these individuals by up to 500%. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, it's it's an amazing uh, thing. Uh, during the 1950s and 60s, uh, Russian scientists in the Soviet Union uh, acted uh, more thoroughly with uh, dolphin research in relation to human beings, especially children, than uh, any other place in the world. And there were a number of experiments. Some of them uh, are well-documented, others are not, in which uh, children, which are known as water babies, in other words, these were children that were uh, born in the water uh, and were raised <laughs> mostly in the water, uh, and they were also raised with dolphins. Uh, one experiment in particular is very interesting in this regard. There was a boy and a girl, unrelated, who uh, were water babies. They were born in water. And they were in an environment that was normal. And they, were, they had parents and regular kid friends and all that. But they also had a lot of dolphin friends. And they, it turns out that the children preferred being in the water. They preferred being with the dolphins more than anybody else, except for perhaps their mother and father for a while. And the intelligence level of the children uh, grew incre incredibly, exponentially, so that they were able to, they had an actual uh, impatience with their lessons that they had. They would learn them as quickly as possible, thoroughly, and then move on to just cohorting and having fun with the, with the dolphins. But the children's intelligence level is incredibly high. The, uh, the real amazing thing that came out of that experiment, though, even more remarkable than that, than their, their, it seemed like their intelligence had actually been accelerated. It was not only how much they could grasp, but the speed at which they, they grasped was far beyond their years. And uh, this is the, the incredible thing. The children actually began to undergo physiological changes, physical changes. In other words, uh, the children began to, they could swim at incredible speeds, they actually seemed to learn from the dolphins. And the girl evidenced uh, the beginning of a, a membrane growing between her legs, between her thighs. And the children, both the boy and the girl, evidenced uh, an increase in syndactyly. Syndactyly is the webbing that occurs between fingers and toes in certain uh, percentages of the population. Now, as incredible as this uh, experiment was, it's, it's verified by... Uh, adults, that if you go into the water 
and you spend, say, several years swimming like an Olympic swimmer, you're going to put on blubber. You're going to put on, on fat. Even though you're exercising, you're eating properly, uh, that's because the human body responds uh, to, be, to all these sea mammal traits that we uh, don't really notice too much in our walk-a-day life. But when we're in the water, we develop something called swimmer's fat, which is the addition of this blubber, this buoyancy. So our bodies are, are just primed to really respond to, to water intellectually and physically. And this is because we have our last aquatic phase was not long ago. And I think that uh, within the last maybe 40 to 10,000 years, we were, again, evolving towards sea mammalhood. Uh, but again, uh, nature intervened and cast us back on the land again. But that's not very long ago, 10 to 40,000 years ago. And we still have some of these, these traits in us. Now, you speak a lot about myths from many different cultures that uh, are focused on dolphins. Tell us yes, about some uh, of them. Well, I found is that not only uh, cultures that are unrelated to one another uh, around the world, whether it's ancient Greece or New Guinea, uh, they have very similar uh, reverence for dolphins. But I found that even back through ancient time, there's this commonality. Uh, now, the, of course, Athens at the time of Pericles was about as high as a civilization possibly gets. So highly literate and creative people were still making buildings similar to theirs. And during the age of Pericles in Athens, which is a high point of human civilization, it was a capital offense to kill a dolphin. Um, in other words, you, you were uh, liable to capital punishment. Dolphins were considered uh, sacred beings. They were considered uh, human beings, actually considered human. Uh, so they're which are way far ahead of us in that regard than, than we are today. They regard the dolphins as creatures that were formerly human, but they were blessed by the gods uh, in the sea, and that's why you're not uh, to kill a dolphin is like killing a human being, and uh, you suffer capital punishment if you do so. And uh, I, I think that the same sort of reverence is found, strangely enough, amongst the Amazonian peoples in Brazil, where they refer to the Botu, B-O-T-O-U, Botu, and the Botu is their name for a dolphin, and uh, these people that live in the Amazon. Uh, as uh, as physically as materially uh, primitive as they may be, uh, they have a reverence for the botu and are, do not kill it and do not allow anyone else to to harm it. Uh, all other animals are fair game uh, because they're in uh, survival mode, and so they mm -hmm. have to to kill to eat, but not the uh, botu or the dolphin under any circumstance. So here I have a comparison between this highly developed uh, civilization of, of the Periclean Athens. Uh, well, it has the same uh, reverence, the same law as uh, these Amazonian peoples have for the Botu today. And you find it reflected in the art and literature of these uh, civilizations as well. Right. Uh, a common theme uh, that most of our listeners can probably recognize in, in ancient Greece was that of the boy on the dolphin. Uh, that was repeated in thousands of representations and pottery and statues and so forth. It's, it's, they even made a movie about it uh, some years ago. And this is the relationship between uh, children and dolphins, which has been borne out by research. Uh, the Greeks had numerous stories that have come down to us about uh, 
a kind of a dolphin mysteries. They refer to them actually as the dolphin mysteries. These are secrets that some dolphins share with children, uh, but rarely with adults. There, there is a story of this uh, one boy, uh, Lycus, who uh, befriended a dolphin and used to swim on the back of the dolphin commonly enough at the in the uh, Bay of Piraeus in Greece. And one day the dolphin took him on its back far out at sea, beyond sight of land, and everyone thought that the boy had been drowned, would, would never see him again. And not too much later in that day, the dolphin came speeding back with the boy on his back, and everyone asked Lycus, what happened? And the boy wouldn't tell them. He said he had been sworn to secrecy by the dolphin. And uh, there are other stories like this of these so-called mysteries. So what is going on? I have no idea. There's, there is some intense level of communication, especially between dolphins and children. And this is because both of them, what do both of them have in common? They both love to play. Children, the number one thing is to have fun. And, and that is really the big thing with dolphins, too. Their, their big meaning of life is to have as much fun as possible. But there's some commonality that's going on, some shared information that is taking place. And that I don't presume to know what it is, but uh, it's wonderful to speculate on. But speaking of sharing information, you do talk about telepathy as a uh, talent of the dolphins. Telepathy is just one uh, means by which they communicate. Uh, this, of course, is another radical thing, but uh, most delphinologists, I would say most, I would go out on a limb and say most delphinologists today, a delphinologist is a university-trained scientist who's dedicated his life to understanding researching dolphins. And in my experience, they will tell you on, uh, confidentially that dolphins are telepathic. As a matter of fact, when I was at the Roratan Marine Institute three years ago, and I was talking to one of the scientists there, and uh, I kind of threw him off guard. I said, uh, do you think dolphins are telepathic? And he looked furtively around to make sure that none of his uh, professors were looking in his way, and he just said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And there are numerous examples of dolphin telepathy. uh, I think that if you wanted to make a case for telepathy, you'd really want to start, as a legitimate phenomenon, you really should start with dolphins. There's an example of this one great gal. She's a terrific researcher, and she is told about how when she is planning to do uh, a routine for the dolphins, you know, some series of tricks that they will go through uh, to test their their learning abilities, their learning speed, uh, before she even initiates the signals. In other words, she's thinking about maybe using this particular routine they should do. The dolphins do the routine. She says that has happened a lot. Uh, and the dolphins seem to, to like to do that, uh, again, just for, for fun. There, there are many examples of where dolphins uh, play tricks on people, or they. Uh, this one uh, example I can think of is this one the sailor was going around thinking it was silly, he had a fish on his head. He was just walking out this big fish on board the boat, and he had a fish on his head as a gag. And then this dolphin appears with a fish on its head, was going around the boat with a fish on its head. So they have, definitely have an active sense of humor. But and, they, uh, they, also, they also can uh, exact revenge. Uh, you were talking about the dolphins being piloting ships through some perilous waters, except for one ship uh, from which a sailor had shot at a dolphin. 
Well, the dolphins, they don't really participate in revenge, but there have been some cases where they, they have. And that case is uh, very well documented. It's referring to Polaris Jack. And uh, this is a, a dolphin, a wild dolphin, that appeared between the North and the South Islands of New Zealand at the turn of the 20th century. And um, this was the most dangerous sea passage in the South Pacific. Um, it's called the, grave land, uh, the Graveyard of Ships and because of the storms that arise there suddenly and the great rocky areas that are very difficult to charter. And a lot of ships have gone down. And this one dolphin, a white dolphin, it's called a Rizzo's dolphin, it's a white dolphin, that appeared one day around 1890 and would literally um, guide ships through the dangerous channel and save the lives of thousands of people on ferry boats going from the north to the South Island, New Zealand. This, this dolphin uh, knew exactly where to go through the channels and the, the pilots on board the ship, the captains, the skippers, would follow the dolphin and they had, had no more difficulties. Except one day, somebody on board one of these ferries Took a pot shot Wait. at Polaris Jack with a rifle. <laughs> hang on, and, hang uh, on. There's a okay. wonderful moral to this tale, so we'll, do, okay. we'll we'll describe it when we get back from our break. Okay, Frank, tell us about Jack. Okay, well, Polaris Jack, as I said, was successful in ferrying all these ships through this dangerous stretch of water between the North and South Islands of New Zealand. And, one and he day, just volunteered. Um, he he just, he just this this uh, dolphin just appeared out of nowhere and would volunteer to guide all these ships. Never a ship was missed. Uh, and this is really unusual because dolphins are very social animals. They travel in pods. So they very rarely have someone that uh, acts on its own. He was never seen with any other dolphins. It actually was filmed, by the way. So if there are listeners who want to see what Polaris Jack looked like, they can go on YouTube and just uh, keyboard in Polaris Jack. And there's a 1912 film that was taken by one of the skippers of Polaris Jack. He would he ride right in front of the bow to make sure that uh, the skippers knew exactly where to turn because it's a very treacherous area. So anyway, after uh, this one fool uh, took a pot shot at him, uh, Polaris Jack um, continued to show up and didn't seem to bother him at all. Missed him, luckily. He didn't hit him, but it was, close. It was a near miss. And uh, so uh, the name of the ship, by the way, on which the, uh, the man that shot him was called the SS Penguin. <laughs> and uh, Polaris Jack uh, continued to dutifully shepherd all these ships from north to South Island, except the Penguin. He avoided the Penguin, would never go anywhere near it. Now, how is it possible that a creature living in the water was able to distinguish that one particular vessel from all the other ships that traveled, the hundreds of ships that traveled between the North and South Island? But he did. He never had anything to do with the Penguin. As it turns out, on the next voyage that the penguin took, she struck the rocks and went down, and it was the greatest loss of life in New Zealand's history in, in peacetime. So almost 100 men, women, and children went down with the penguin. Polaris Jack uh, returned after that and continued to escort ships. But the good thing about it was is that after that happened, the uh, authorities in New Zealand enacted the first Animal Protection Act in modern history. And it... Polaris Jack was protected by law after that. No one was allowed to um, menace or molest the animal in any way after that. <laughs> and um, so until 1912, early 1912, he continued on. And then in early 1912, he, he vanished. Uh, nobody ever understood why. He did not appear to be 
old or ill in any way. Nobody bothered him. He just vanished. Strangely enough, he disappeared just about the same time that the Titanic went down. Now, whether there's any connection between the two, who knows? But nonetheless, it's an interesting comparison. Now, another mystery you describe is this annual gathering of millions of dolphins in May. Tell us about that. Uh, Yeah, it it just gets, the whole question gets stranger all the time. (laughs) Uh, The the average dolphin uh, pod, uh, a group of dolphins, can really reach anywhere from a dozen or so to several dozen. It doesn't get really much bigger than about 100. But every year, annually, uh, in early May, in other words, we just passed this last time from May 9th to about the 13th, not hundreds, not thousands, but literally millions, if you can imagine this, millions of dolphins congregate in one spot. It's called the Strait of Lompoc. It's in Indonesia. It's a few hundred miles west of Java. As you might understand from that, it's an extremely remote part of the world. Few people go there. But if it has been reported, and, and not just reported by... Uh, unscientific uh, persons, but by uh, biologists, marine biologists, that sometimes 30 or 40 square miles of sea are packed with dolphins. And when they're there, they're not there for feeding. They're not there for mating. Uh, What they do is they mostly go into a condition called logging. Logging is where they're like in an altered state of consciousness, where they are just floating with half of their brain functioning, and they just, they sort of lollygag in this area for about three or four days. And it's an annual undertaking. It was, has been noticed as long ago as during the time of Aristotle, you know, the great teacher of Alexander the Great. And Aristotle said it's a strange thing, but every time in early May, all the dolphins in the Aegean Sea, or in other words, the eastern Mediterranean, they vanish. They, they leave. They, they disappear. That's because they're all on their way to the Straits of Lompoc in Indonesia. What that's all about, boy, you can get some really far-out speculation (laughs) on that. But nonetheless, it's a very, very peculiar thing. The dolphins do a lot of strange things we know nothing about. Jacques Cousteau said that the strangest thing he ever saw, and he saw a lot of strange things in his days, was when he saw a, uh, a circle of dolphins, of about a dozen dolphins, 10 or a dozen dolphins, literally sitting on the seafloor, sitting on their flukes in a circle, slowly nodding to one another. He said it was really freaky, absolutely the freakiest thing he ever saw in his life. What were they doing? What is What was going on there? Like a, like a council of some kind. They were actually sitting like human beings on their flukes, looking and nodding at one another slowly. Very bizarre. And you wrote that he has never forgiven himself for not taking a camera. Yeah, that's right. That's his his one great regret, he said. He didn't (laughs) photograph it. So elsewhere, he said that it was the strangest thing that he ever saw. Uh (laughs) So you do make a point that uh, in in your kind of gut, that there is a connection between Atlantis and Lemuria and the dolphins. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, this uh, as though this convocation of billions of dolphins isn't weird enough in itself in the Straits of Lompoc. And it takes place, as I said, 
generally from May 9th to the 13th. Well, in ancient Rome, there was the oldest ceremony, and one of the most sacred ceremonies that the Romans had, and it was called the Lemuria. And the Lemuria was kind of like our Halloween, in a way. It was believed that all the spirits of people that had died under unfortunate circumstances would come back, and they had to be propitiated. And they had come back from this great uh, land, this great homeland of mankind called Lemuria, which they separated entirely from Atlantis. Some place the Romans had no idea where, but this island had suffered a natural catastrophe and that these souls came back. Well, that is exactly when the dolphins have their convocation in the Straits of Lompoc, is during the Roman Lemuria. Not only that, but that part of the world is regarded as one of the locations for former Lemuria, which was this kind of an archipelago. It was like an island chain in which human beings supposedly made the first transition from savagery to civilization. This is where they made the big change from Homo sapiens to Homo sapiens sapiens. And in that hyphen, uh, contains a great deal, because Homo sapiens was rather uh, in an evolutionary deadlock at that time for hundreds of, for many thousands of years. But Homo sapiens sapiens, modern man, he made that transition to adaptability that I was talking about earlier uh, that Homo sapiens did not have. And it's in that part of the world. So here we have the dolphins celebrating the Lemuria in the location of Lemuria, the suspected location of Lemuria. <laughs> kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many, many kind of interesting things you'll find in this book are dolphin ancestors. And you uh, also talk a lot about Atlantis. Where does Atlantis come into the picture? Well, in uh, Plato's description of Atlantis, which is still the best, I suppose, Plato, of course, being the, the founder of, modern, uh, of Western thinking, Western thought, probably the, the greatest single mind that Western civilization has ever produced, he's a pretty good, uh, pretty credible source for the story of Atlantis. And his two dialogues, called the Timaeus and the Critias, have a pretty thorough description of what Atlantis looked like. And he describes the Temple of Poseidon as the most important spiritual place on the, in Atlantis, at the very center of their um, capital. And in the Temple of Poseidon, there was a great colossus, a great statue of the god, the sea god, standing in his uh, chariot, being pulled by winged horses. And around the base of this great statue were what Plato describes as 100 nereids. Well, nereids in Greek mythology are women that ride dolphins. So in other words, here's the base of Poseidon's statue surrounded by these sacred female spirits riding on the backs of dolphins. So the dolphin played a major role in Atlantean thought. There's a, a, a wonderful manuscript in the um, Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, which was examined by uh, a uh, professor by the name of Neely back in the 1960s. The, the manuscript is still there. It talks about how the uh, Atlanteans, supposed, Atlanteans supposedly developed a kind of a science in which they were trying to establish uh, closer relationships 
between human beings and dolphins with the idea that humans should eventually evolve back into the sea. Apparently that was one of the agendas that the leaders of Atlantis thought, uh, wanted to have for, for mankind. They felt, felt that we were a botched uh, species on land, that we were a clumsy species on land, that we needed to pursue our destiny in the sea. This, is, this goes back uh, to Atlantis through this manuscript that's in the Hermitage Museum in, in Russia. So I thought that's, that's a beginning. I follow up, I go further on that. Of course, the Atlantean connection is found in amongst uh, the other Greek islands of Delos, for example, where the mm -hmm. dolphin was associated with uh, Atlantean uh, culture bearers arriving in Greece. Well, and you know, into that in Greece, you Frank, we could just, we have only scratched the surface. So all I can Absolutely. do is commend your book, Our Dolphin Ancestors, to our listeners. Uh, Frank, you have a Facebook page, but I couldn't discover a website. Well, no, I don't have a I don't have a Facebook page, and I don't have a website oh. either. Uh, if people are interested in my book, they can go to Amazon.com, and they can. Uh, that's probably the best <laughs> the place to get it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Frank, and thank you for your book, Our Dolphin well, Ancestors. Thank you very much, Mary, for your intelligent questions. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, and I hope you'll join us next week. I'm Miriam Knight. Goodbye. <laughs> 